Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and talk radio show explore the world's diverse cultural landscape at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice. We share voices from across six continents and the Caribbean archipelago. Activism has long been a way for artists and curators, writers and filmmakers, to engage with global flashpoints, inspiring new perspectives on visible and unseen causes. Over the last century, public interventions, performative protests, and works created for public marches and events have led communities to participate in art experiences and make art themselves. The Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, Dreamers, and climate change activists expose sexual harassment and assault, race-based violence, immigrant rights violations, and the impact of sea level rise. The issues have energized today's culture production. Contemporary artists and curators increasingly lead and invite calls to action in response to these vital concerns. Los Angeles-based Andrea Bowers is one artist who has made activism a way of life. Her 2018 video, titled Disrupting and Resisting, documents the largest single-day protest in the history of the United States. A gathering on January 20, 2017, in Washington, D.C., Inauguration Day for the 45th U.S. President. The video is evidence of how Bowers participates as witness, protester, and artist in service to professional activists. We meet for the first time at the opening of the Site Santa Fe Biennial, Unsettled Landscapes, in 2014. I went to CalArts and I didn't take classes in how to draw. I took a class in how to secede from the country. I took a class on the left and the failure of the left. I took classes on, you know, not working as a radical political position. I mean, I took amazing, crazy political classes because it was kind of like a school founded by utopian Marxist feminists. <laughs> and I think that had a lot to do with it. As you just heard, Andrea's studies were rather unconventional. But it turns out she was thinking like an activist long before art school. I was always, as a kid, really passionate about politics. And George Bush's presidency really made me rebel against him. <laughs> and it made me really, like, if all, whatever I can do to help change things, I'm going to do it. And so I started using what my skills are, which is art, to try to you know, participate or help in any way I could with activists and sort of like activist campaigns. And so I would lend my artistic skills. And I found that those groups of people were so excited to have me participate. And it was a very welcoming experience. And so I've just 
become more and more courageous. I don't think of it as courage anymore. At the time when I first started, I did. And involved. These days, Andrea shapes entire exhibitions around activism. Her art is a call to action that gives voice to concerns often ignored. I've been thinking about what art can do and what art can be rather than what art can't do and what art can't be. So one of the things that art can do is it can bear witness. So I think a lot about how my role is documenting these, I think, undertold stories of these incredible activists or these incredible activist events in a much deeper long-term way than 247 News. It might not surprise you to hear that a few years ago, Andrea made the news herself. Hey, that tree can fall on us! You better stop him! Come on! The artist explains exactly how she ended up chained to a tree in the Arcadia woodlands outside Los Angeles. My art practice has made me a more radical activist because I had this famous activist, John Quigley, who's a kind of famous American tree setter. And I've been following him for years. And he was staying at my house for six months because he was traveling so much that he needed a place to stay. And of course, he's an activist, puts all his money into the cause. So he had no money, so he didn't pay rent or anything for six months. And I said, John, you have to trade me something. So I want you to spend a day teaching me how to tree sit, and I'm going to videotape it as a kind of training video artwork. Well, I loved it. I was a little cynical about it. I was like, it'll be goofy, but I actually was really good at it. I don't know why, but I was like really good at it, and I loved it. And then six months later, he called me up, and he's like, there's a terrible situation in Arcadia. We're going in, and we need you to go. But what they were trying to do was rip out this beautiful pristine urban wilderness area. And it was unfortunately kind of bowl shaped. Like these trees were beautiful, beautiful oak trees, like 250 trees, but they wanted to clear cut this kind of bowl shaped valley so they could dredge the concrete rivers and take all of the debris and dirt and put it someplace. They needed a dumping ground. So I attempted to stop that from happening. It did not stop it, but I think that what it did was it brought attention and stopped future areas for this happening because it brought a lot of media attention. Andrea wove artifacts of her tree-sitting experience into the shimmering green sculpture that's now on view inside Santa Fe's 2014 biennial exhibition. As soon as I was released from jail, which I was in jail for around two days, I guess, I went out to this I wanted to see what it looked like, and it was devastating. There were these beautiful oak trees, and instead of cutting them down and at least using this, this wood, oak, right? Everybody wants oak. They put them in wood chippers and turned them into little tiny pieces. So I didn't know what to do. I just, I had no ideas, but I thought, I have this truck. I'm going to fill the truck up with wood chips until I can't, like, move anymore. And, and one of the neighbors helped me, and we filled up the truck with wood chips, and I just saved them all this time. So this piece, I used all the climbing ropes that we use as tree sitters. You know, you use, like, climbing gear. And I've used the climbing gear to make this kind of beautiful, it almost looks like a chandelier, I think. It does. And all the wood are tied in bundles at the bottom. Because I was really trying to pay homage to these trees and thinking, is there some way I can re-monumentalize them? 
In a video she produced about the protest, Andre remembers what happened in the late afternoon when her tree was the last one standing. Just before police officers climbed into a cherry picker to pluck Andrea from her perch, she had a surprising encounter. The weirdest thing happened. There were no trees left, and all of a sudden, animals started to come into the tree we were in because it was the only tree left. We were suddenly swarmed by bats encircling us, all different kinds of birds. There were actually rats running into the tree. I mean, it was, it was craziness because there, it was the last of the little bit of this ecosystem. Bugs, you know, moss, it was... It was, it was devastating, it was depressing because you realized how many other animals' yeah. habitats and, and insects' habitats had been destroyed in an afternoon. Andrea believes in art as agency, in the potential for art to address social and political issues. Art has always been political. It's better for the market if we aren't like that. Because, you know, right away, if you think about just in the States, I've, I'm cutting out 50% of the people who might want to buy my work. <laughs> but, you know, that's not why I make art. You know, I make art because I want to be in service of those political campaigns and activists that, that I believe in. That's my number one goal in my work. But I think about art, too, and what important things can art do? And what can it do in the future? What I mean, can it do in the what, future? Are you setting a pattern for yourself? But you've had this pattern. It's right. not new for you to do what you're doing. That's who you are. Yeah, but you know, you have to press yourself forward and yes. try to do more and more and take yes. on more difficult subjects. When I reconnect with Andrea Bowers in 2018, she tells me about the monumental sign she created for the Highline Park in New York as part of the art exhibition titled Agora. Taking its name from the ancient Greek word referring to the square, a public space at the heart of city-states like Athens, the exhibition transforms the linear park into an arena for the collective voice of contemporary social commentary. Andrea Bauer's huge neon sign represents her ongoing support for dreamers, individuals who came to the United States at an early age without documentation who have assimilated to U.S. culture, and who have been educated in U.S. schools. Somos 11 millones, we are 11 million, speaks to the number of undocumented immigrants in the United States. Bauer's new video also bears witness to the Women's March of January 21, 2017, when a sea of feminists and their supporters gathered in the U.S. Capitol the day after the inauguration, wearing pink hats, bearing handmade posters, protesting, singing, and chanting. They proclaim immigrant and reproductive rights, gender equality, and the power of a unified voice. After intense collective research, Bowers has just shipped off her latest project to Germany 
for a summer 2018 solo exhibition at the Capitan Petzl Gallery in Berlin. Titled Open Secret, the 65-foot-long, 13-foot-high wall installation documents the Me Too movement. So I created a database of every person accused of sexual harassment. So it's their name, it's their profession, it's their apology. Oftentimes then I include a photo that I've chosen. And then underneath that, it's a summary of the case or what they're accused of. I was able so far on a 64-foot wall to fill it with 100. I still have over 250 to do. Wow. But it becomes a giant wall that describes patriarchy and also marks this moment in time because all of the dates are from 2017 to 2018. What I realized is I was watching all the names come up and over the last year, but I hadn't really, really investigated what the women were saying. And when you do that, you're like, oh, so, you know, it's about trusting and believing women. There is a huge divide in our country and our culture, not just our country, in the world, between what men think is normalized sexual behavior versus how women feel about that behavior. For many feminists, the Me Too movement is life-changing. This is the first time in history that women are standing together to face their sexual abusers. In related work, Bowers investigates and supports gender identity and sexual orientation rights through drawings that rework historic photographs and documents of socio-political struggles. The artist presented a selection from her nonviolent disobedience drawings in the 2008 group show Amateurs at the California College of the Arts Wattis Institute of Contemporary Art. Ralph Rugoff, director of the Hayward Gallery in London, curated the exhibition to demonstrate how artists co-create works with communities outside the art world. Rugoff more recently organized the exhibition Modern Life for the 14th Lyon Biennial in France. On that occasion, he invited artists to explore ambiguities and uncertainties at the core of today's immigration, national identity, and economic issues. In our conversation, recorded in 2015, Rugoff talks about his concept for the exhibition and how participating artist Kader Atia plans to show his response to the 2015 terrorist attack on the office of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo in a suburb of Paris. One of the things I hope to investigate with this Biennale is our definition of the contemporary, which often seems very superficial to me. I'm hoping through the work of the artists who are really the people investigating this to raise a question about how history animates and shapes and informs our contemporary moment so that the contemporary, rather than being something brand new and something that's divorced from the past, we actually experience how it's connected to different historical trajectories. There's a work that grew out of the artist's response to that 
Charlie Hebdo attack. And this is an artist, Kader Atia, who grew up in France and also at times in Algeria, but who knew quite well the area outside of Paris where the uh, killers came from. And he had family who were still living in that area, and he was talking to lots of different people about their responses to that event. And he decided to investigate this, and he began what has turned into what will be an 18-screen video installation with each screen in its own kind of office, as if you're in a little archive. And the screens are showing interviews he's had with ethnopsychologists, philosophers, psychoanalysts, patients in mental hospitals, many other people, all dealing with this question of what is it like to live in a foreign culture. As Rugoff explains, artists are investigating and revealing the historical roots of contemporary issues through stories that are both personal and collective. Other biennial exhibitions and art institutions as well have opened up to displays of activism and political movements. In 2016, the Brooklyn Museum dedicated a series of exhibitions and events to explore feminism and to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art. Curator Catherine Morris explains. It's been described as a feminist takeover of the museum. I love that. (laughs) That is absolutely the idea. You know, when the Sackler Center opened 10 years ago, and we do have a discrete space within the institution, an exhibition and forum space. I think that people originally thought that's what it would be. It would be a discrete moment within the installation calendar of the institution. But for me, having been the curator here now for the last almost eight years, it has seemed that the opportunity that the Brooklyn Museum offers a place like the Sackler Center needs to be explored. We need to get outside the confines of the physical space and get into the entire museum historically, culturally, socially, and all the ways that that culture and history is represented. Looking at art history through the lens of feminism is is the motivation for this. It absolutely is. And I have to give Nancy Spector credit for that title. And it's so appropriate and it feels so right on so many different levels. One of the things that's been a a real challenge and a pleasure for me as the curator of the Sackler Center is thinking about how the Sackler Center can function not only within the Brooklyn Museum, but within the larger art world. I think it'd be great with that thought in mind to talk about the work of art that is at the heart of that center. The Dinner Party is the iconic work of art that defines this very important feminist project to revise history. That's what the Dinner Party set out to do. That's what it continues to do. And so centering on that work of art was absolutely the brilliant opening for what we are today, what we will become, continuing to reference that history and think about that history and also try and understand and see how it's being seen and used by younger generation of people today. Listeners from outside the U.S. might not know exactly what Judy Chicago's dinner party is, what it looks like. The dinner party was made between 1974 and 1978, and it is a monumental sculptural installation that re-envisions 
the Western Eurocentric history from the point of view of who was not included in that history. And the model that Judy developed was the idea of the dinner party. You know, who deserves a seat at this table of history? And it is the form of a triangle with 33 place settings representing 33 biographies of women that Judy prioritized as telling important stories in that history. On the floor around these place settings are 999 additional names of important women in history. So a total of 1,038 biographies are made available effectively in this moment in the late 1970s in a pre-internet, a pre-Google, a pre-Wikipedia age. And That's what Judy set out to do in combination with making a really dramatic and beautiful visual representation of these people and their stories. It's pretty exceptional. I've been there and it's like a chapel. The design is intended to really highlight the iconic presence of women in the field. The Year of Yes expands on that room, that one space, to take it throughout the museum. If we were making a global statement about how the Year of Yes reimagines feminism, what would you say? I think I would say that reimagining feminism from a historical point of view means acknowledging its very deep roots in our culture and the very profound impact it has already had on the way all of us live our lives, and acknowledging that, pointing to that, celebrating that, and then really thinking about what the priorities are for future generations, because feminism is not something that's going to go away. I feel more than ever the real need for a place like the Sackler Center to exist and to continue to produce exhibitions and programs and to support ideas about the necessity of feminism. And so how the year of yes will influence the future? I hope we participate as my more feminist instinct in a way, how we collaborate, how we support future thinkers about feminism, how we help describe it, how we help point to it, how we help illustrate it is absolutely what a a museum needs to be doing. In 2018, the Whitney Museum of American Art was one New York institution that took up the flag, following the stream of activist art within its own collection. An incomplete history of protest looked at how artists from the 1940s to the present have confronted the political and social issues of their day. Art as a form of activism, criticism, instruction, and inspiration challenges established thought to create a more equitable culture. The new museum's 2018 triennial exhibition, Songs for Sabotage, revealed how a younger generation of artists is pushing against the forces that structure contemporary society, reflecting a shared sense of unrest in our world. They propose creative ways to interfere in political and social structures. I speak with new museum curator Gary Carrion Muriari about the artists he and co-curator Alex Gartenfeld invited to participate in the exhibition. All of these artists, you know, have their own, you know, are involved in, you know, activist politics. What I admire about the artists in the show is that, you know, they're very familiar with the histories that, the historical events, the historical memory that built 
you know, the societies that they live in. And they're very much aware of how their work is a continuation of art's capacity to resist. Manolis D. Lemos, an artist based in Athens, Greece, introduces the work he brings to the conversation. His video, Dusk and Dawn Look Just the Same, subtitled Riot Tourism, responds to a decade of protests against political and economic conditions in his home country. It is a story that's quite interesting to me. I painted this uh, landscape, like abstract landscape of a sunset or a sunrise, uh, like uh, on the backs of these raincoats that the, the performers are wearing. And uh, there is this theme of the exoticization, you know, of riot and of this portrayal and of Athens in the media and in the cultural field as a riot uh, town. And, it's abstract in the way I conceived it, but very dense in references. Uh, this is a video, yes. and it's filmed in Athens. It's one of the most busy streets of Athens, <laughs> and it's the central square and the central street. But uh, I went there with 24 performers very early on a Sunday morning, like at 6 a.m., so we kind of occupied the, the street. It's beautiful choreography. I felt it was joyful and sinister and surprising. They are marching first in an organized kind of way, and then at some point they start dispersing and running. But it's ambivalent between chasing something, being chased by something, or chaotically running in the city, but without actually interacting with any objects. At the same time, there's these parallel narrations, which are coincidental, but very essential for choosing the shot where you can see a worker opening a shop at the left and you can see some birds flying. Yeah. What do you want to say with this work? I want the reading of the work to be abstract and poetic. I don't want it to be very straightforward, but the energy of the piece is what interested me more. The portrayal of Athens and the history of Athens. It's very different to see these works here than to see them in like a rundown building in, in Athens. And I think this contrast enhances the effect of the works. At this time and at this place, I think it's just very relevant. <laughs> Cuban-born artist Tanya Bruguera is a controversial figure known for presenting performances in politically charged public spaces. In 2015, during opening days of the Havana Art Biennial, she introduced her newest project, the Hannah Arendt Institute for Artivism. I meet her in the doorway of her house near the National Museum of Art. Just months earlier, presidents of Cuba and the U.S. had announced a rapprochement between the two countries, but Cuba was still not ready for Bruguera's style of activism. Her unauthorized public intervention in late December 2014 landed the artist in jail for three days. Determined to stay on course, she moves ahead with the performance, this time inside her home. Bruguera says the performance is the beginning of her new art activism project. 
I'm doing an opening session, let's say, for a new project I'm going to start, which is the Institute for Artivism, Hannah Arendt, in Cuba. So hopefully the police come and learn what artivism is. The artist launched her 100-hour ode to Hannah Arendt two days before the opening of the biennial, inviting volunteers to read from the book. She timed the performance to coincide with the 113th anniversary of Cuban Independence Day, May 20th. So the performance started yesterday? It started yesterday at 10. And we have been uh, ongoing, uninterrupted, reading uh, the origins of totalitarism. And I think something that I really like is the fact that it is on the street, it is for the street. It's not, it's indoor, but the projection is on the street. And uh, it's, you know, just, it's nice to have this kind of uh, quote-unquote music with this background, you know? I agree. And people listening a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so where will you position yourself with this new institute? For me, this is my answer to everything that happens. And I think Anan, it should be something people should read in Cuba at the moment. Uh, we can learn a lot. It's very interesting how she understood that totalitarianism is not about left or right. It's about the desire to be in power and to not let it go. So I think it's... Uh, no, it's a wonder. It's a beautiful book. Right? I want to know what you hope to achieve with this project. Well, the idea is to, first of all, I have understood that uh, uh, artivism is something that has a lot of uh, need. The context has a lot of need for in Cuba. And uh, it would be nice to have a place where people can exchange ideas about the projection for the future of Cuba, the projection for social change, uh, and to give art a role in that discussion. So we'll see. You said you, you can't leave Havana? No, no, Havana, no. No, Havana, no Cuba. That's fine. I mean, I don't care. At this point, I'm beyond so many things. And the only thing I trust now is my work, that's it. I know this is a great piece, I know the idea of the Institute is good, and uh, I just need to believe it. I think right now it's good to have artivism in Cuba. Art in, the, in this moment is good for Cuba. Tanya Bruguero left Cuba not long after we spoke to become the first artist in residence in the New York City Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. Curator Maria Elena Ortiz remembers the 2011 political project she organized with Bruguera in Mexico City through the Sala de Arte Público Siqueiros. Born in Puerto Rico, Ortiz now works as a curator at the Paris Art Museum, Miami. She was very interested in the role of Mexico as this passageway from Latin America to the U.S., and she decided to create a political party called Partido del Pueblo Emigrante, Migrant People Party. First, we have to do research on the subject itself, of course, and political parties in Mexico, <laughs> how they work, and also kind of take serious decisions about how real this is going to be. As you cannot just start your party and go into elections. There's like a whole process to do that. We ended up at least creating the structure of it. So we got a headquarters for the party, for the political party. 
which was in the historic center of Mexico City in this place called Casa Talavera, which is actually managed by the UNAM, by the Universidad Autónoma de, de México, the biggest university there. We had to hire a head at the party that was... You had t-shirts, you had stickers. We would meet every so often to talk about the next actions of the party because it turns out that this experience of migration did affect other people. It had implications in the community. So we had to make a lot of partnerships and allies with people that were already making immigrant work. What was the response of the community to this opportunity to join the party? Well, the people that were interested in the subject, they were part of the, of the party and they would meet. The group members also did actions, like artistic actions that would be related to the party. One of the actions was we got different voceros, which are people that in Mexico tell the news, to walk through the Centro Historico and to talk about the party. And that was really neat also as a artistic strategy. In 2014, Tanya Bruguera's Hanna Arendt Institute recognized the Russian punk performance group Pussy Riot with the Prize for Political Thought. I reach out to band member Maria Aloykina in London to talk about how she has re-engaged in activism since she was released from prison in late December 2013. It's lovely to meet you today, Maria. Thank you. I'm so happy to have this opportunity to hear your voice after having represented Pussy Riot on Fresh Art International through the documentary Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer. Hard to imagine. In fact, they never expected it. The two-minute performance led to their arrests and to a televised trial where Maria transformed testimony and cross-questioning into political performance art. In late October 2012, Maria and band member Nadia Tolakonikova were sent to separate prisons to serve two-year sentences for hooliganism. On December 23, 2013, they were released in an amnesty deal. Maria and Nadia have been politically active ever since. You have been involved in other kinds of protest or political action since you've been out, and you've been awarded a Hannah Arendt Prize for political thought. How did that feel to receive that recognition? I feel my life as a political protest and political action. Actually, uh, it's life of um, political artists in Russia in general. Hannah Arendt, she's really important for me. Uh, I read her a lot when, when I was in jail in Moscow. Her book about revolution, I had a like, serious fight with prison guards to have this book in my cell because prison guards really don't like the word revolution in the cover of the book. That's a real problem to to have inside prison books with such titles. Our government, especially Putin, wants to somehow put back Stalin's cult. Figures such as Hannah Arendt, who is demonstrating totalitarian concept, are the most important now for us. We've talked, you and I, about the importance of Pussy Riot as a movement in a way representing human rights. And I wonder how it feels to be considered in some ways an icon. 
I don't believe in icons. I think each gesture and each action of every person is as important as ours, for example, and we all can be models. This is probably what I was trying to say in the course and after that. You should just not be afraid to be yourself. After you were released from prison, you and Nadia founded Justice Zone. It's a human rights project which we started since we were released. And the main goal is to cover all the topics about violation of freedom in Russia. So our media outlet, Media Zona, is covering the topics of police violence, violence inside penal colonies and prisons, political courts and political murders. And uh, our lawyers are providing legal help for all those who are behind bars. For example, our lawyers were providing help to Peter Pavlensky, who is the main contemporary artist in Russia. He's actually in the show, which we are doing now with Belarus Free Theater. Maria is in London now, working with this independent theater company. They're preparing a performance by and about dissident artists titled Burning Doors after one of Peter Pavlensky's radical protests. Maria performs as herself. I think Belarus Free Theater is like a pussy riot as a political art which is fighting for the freedom. This is my first theater project. This is not like, you know, usual actors. This is people with amazing stories. These two years which I spent in so-called freedom after prison, I had a lot to say about it, actually. And uh, theater, I hope, helped me. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. These conversations at the nexus of art and activism reflect on the power of creative civic engagement. You can hear other Fresh Art International episodes on the subject anywhere you go for podcasts. The Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation invited us to contribute this audio program to issue eight of Exhibitions on the Cusp, an online periodical exploring themes that span the Foundation's two decades of exhibition awards. It means a lot to know you're listening. Thanks to followers like you, we've been sharing stories about contemporary creativity since 2011. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation will match your contribution. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.